Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kaveh Movahed. Albuquerque recently set new homicide records, while legislative reports also show other violent and property crimes are well above the national average. One possible solution in Albuquerque was the Metro Crime Initiative. Started in 2021, advocates and agencies in and around Albuquerque joined together to study violence, gun crimes, faults of the justice system, and the dearth of behavioral health treatment that that have aggravated public safety goals. However, crime's reach goes well beyond the state's largest city. A report last fall shows that almost all categories of crime are up in Santa Fe. And in Clovis, the district attorney told the Eastern New Mexico News that illicit drug use is fueling, quote, violence, robberies, burglaries, domestic violence. He said the majority of the homicides in our area have been drug related. On this episode of Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll discuss public safety and what law enforcement and government can do right now to curtail crime. And we'll hear from community and victims advocates, too. Do you think tougher laws discourage criminal behavior? Are the courts at fault for going easy on defendants? What gaps in our fosters in our system foster crime? Email Let's Talk at KUNM.org or call in live at 505-277-5866. Let's start with our first guest of the morning. Joining us by phone, we have Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller. Thanks for giving us some time this morning. Good morning. Great to be on with you. We're in the third year of the Metro Crime Initiative. And just a note for listeners, the initiative is a financial supporter of KUNM, but we cover the city and its policies the same as everyone, anyone else. So, Mayor, the initiative started with a series of meetings with law enforcement, the justice system, some community engagement. And then last year got us things like an expanded violence intervention program and more money for courts to help them staff up and keep up. How did those specific ideas rise to be a priority? Who was in those conversations? Well, when the Metro Crime Initiative started, we learned a couple of things that I think were relatively new for our city. One was that there'd been a lot of conversations where, you know, there were different people in different rooms. And so the idea behind the Metro Crime Initiative was, you know, it's that sort of tried and true method of let's convene everyone, let's get everyone together. And everyone in this case was a slew of folks involved in the criminal justice system in the metro area, from all the law enforcement agencies to also the courts uh, and even, of course, the DA's office and um, the sort of corrections world with Bernalillo County and then the public defender And then we had even some uh, victims of crime, and we also had some folks who'd been in and out of sort of treatment and their respective advocacy groups. That's how it started. And I think what happened over the last couple of years is, as you mentioned, we had a big push last year and some success around our violence intervention work and being able to appropriately fund that and set it up to be expanded statewide. We also worked on some short-term things, like we had this ankle bracelet monitoring issue which luckily we've moved past now, but it had to do with us not telling each other when ankle bracelets were cut off folks who were wearing them. So this year when we reconvened, uh, we really actually uh, built it around the nexus of, look, we've got guns awash in our streets, unfortunately, for probably the worst time we've ever seen. We also are flooded with fentanyl. These are big national issues. But we also know that we have a criminal justice system here that continues to have holes. And so the spirit of MCI has always been, let's actually not blame each other. Let's support each other in our respective holes. And so we support adequate funding for the courts. We support alternative courts like drug court. 
and we support alternatives to incarceration. We support more funding for the DA's office to prosecute. That's very different. Historically, we all just went up and asked for our own thing. And this year, what surfaced is we really have a problem when it comes to uh, things like outstanding felony warrants. So we know that there are 60,000 misdemeanor warrants outstanding in our city. But, you know, a lot of those are like parking tickets and things like this. That's not actually what anyone thinks is driving crime. But there are 5,000 felony warrants out there. These are people who literally are already under a court order to be arrested, and we haven't arrested them yet. Okay, you've, so you've, this is for felonies. Yeah, you're mentioning a lot of things, and we're going to kind of explore those through the hour. You already talked about gun violence. Um, last year, behavioral health was among the top priorities of MCI, the Metro Crime Initiative. I wonder why. What kinds of things are we seeing manifest from those issues? Well, it really speaks to you know what unfortunately is common is this this challenge around two things. The system, it was about nine years ago, I think, when a former governor dismantled our behavioral health system. And ever since then, we've seen a lack of treatment options, whether it's through the court system, whether it's just voluntary for our family members to take somewhere to take someone. And we're still dealing with that crisis. And so uh, that that's on top of the fact that we are seeing our streets flooded with fentanyl, which is a cheaper, more addictive, more dangerous drug. And so it's sort of the latest wave in things that unfortunately kill members in our community. And so those two things are what we're fighting against there. And, uh, you know, we can't even hire enough behavioral health workers to fill the current spots that we have. And the current spots that we have aren't even enough to meet the demand. So that's really a a statewide health issue that uh, we're doing our part at the Gateway Center uh, with our partners at UNM and at the county. But that's got to be something that uh, we it should be, you know, it is, I know, front and center for our lawmakers. Okay, well, people are getting tired of the violence and the crime. And as attitudes of the electric change, politicians' priori- priorities usually do too. Uh, how have your priorities changed since you first took office to reflect Albuquerque's exasperation with crime? You know, that's a great question. I really appreciate that because mine have changed. And, you know, when I came into office, you certainly want to do everything you can and every way to help the city. But I think what I've come to realize through the Metro Crime Initiative is that our criminal justice system is broken. And that means the way all of it works, whether it's people going in and coming back out or it's the lack of services for people who are coming out. But it also means that we have laws on the books that we can't even enforce. Uh, It is, you know, every aspect of this is a challenge and every aspect is woefully underfunded. And so uh, we right now are not doing justice to anyone, whether it's victims or whether it's our community members to keep them safe. That was new for me to the extent that this is a broken system. Uh, I knew there were problems. We all did. Uh, But now I understand just how bad those problems are. And that is why uh, this has been our top priority since. The last thing I'd say, it's the victims who taught me this. When you talk to family members who have had their children killed, uh, when you go to schools like Washington right up from my house and you understand what happened there and where that gun came from and why that child had access to that gun, you can't acknowledge, like you can't avoid saying that the system is broken and we got to have better rules and laws around also automatic firearms and things of that nature. So for me, uh, that's, that's how I've changed over the last few years.
Okay, well, I'd like to ask about APD. The Albuquerque Police Department is still under a federal consent decree relating to its use of force, and this requires it to reform some of its practices. Actually, this is more of a question for you. How do you balance respecting reforms with an arguably tougher approach to crime? You know, I think the important aspect is accountability and transparency and training. And what we've seen, this has also been a shift. We decided we were going to go full bore into reform at the same time, which I agree with you is, you know, sort of counterintuitive, but we think they actually go together. And it is this notion that our officers understand uh, the rules of engagement and to the best that they can. And there's, they still have a long way to go. They understand and respect the community and know our community and they understand constitutional policing. So we've been able to, to, to finish a quarter of the consent decree, and we're on track actually to, to pull out of half of it uh, this year. And so that's more progress than we've made in seven years. And I think it's given our officers actually much more confidence to go out and do the job that we've asked them to do, a dangerous job. But now they know, okay, what's appropriate, what's not, when can I do what, and before, they were just hesitant and scared for their own safety because the rules kept changing. And we've worked with the advocates and the CASA process and said, okay, we're just going to set this up the way it's supposed to be, and then we're going to go forward. We're not going to continue debating uh, each little piece. And actually, that has been uh, one, I think, bright spot last year is that we were able to move forward on that front. Okay, I think this is a good time to introduce our second guest. On the phone, we have Enrique Cardiel, the executive director of the Health Equity Council and a resident of Albuquerque's International District. He's been active in his community for decades. Enrique, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. We're talking about strategies for curtailing crime. You're a public health practitioner. What are some of the specific root causes for crime that we should address as part of promoting more public safety? Well, I, I think the, the mayor kind of touched on some of these, right? One is we need a comprehensive uh, behavioral health approach. Uh, we're, we're the only industrialized country without universal health care, and we pay for that. Uh, we pay for that in unnecessary deaths, but also the lack of uh, mental health access for folks, right? Um, and so we can piecemeal it together the way uh, we try to do by adding one program here or one program there. We would do better by actually having a, something where everybody is covered, right? Because the folks who are most likely not getting covered are the folks that will interact with law enforcement, Um we need to invest in housing uh, as much so that people who don't have housing are safe, right? Because they interact with law enforcement all the time and report lots of abuse. Uh, we need, you know, to just really work on uh, not connecting uh, living outside with um, being unhoused, you know, with crime. Right. It's two different things. Folks are struggling. There's people who work, who live in tents, right, or live in their car, uh, and they get harassed. And uh, we had a friend who lived with us for six months because APD took their car while they were sleeping at a park, and so they lost their job. Right. Um, so we need to really look at, you know, people need housing, people need education, uh, people need medical services. Uh in order to be healthy, and uh, as a society, we're not providing that. 
we could we could blame one side or the other, but it's really uh, something that goes across the board. Mayor Keller, I'm wondering, do these ideas uh, that Enrique just expressed reflect some of the community input you heard in the Metro Crime Initiative meetings? You know, the uh, notion, of course, that we've got to look at the social underpinnings of why this is happening uh, is completely uh, makes sense and was behind sort of the uh, discussions at the MCI, and that is why we're doing something like our Housing Forward program. I mean, we're trying to get 5,000 new low-income houses in just five years, and we're also, you know, up to the legislature asking for that. Uh, and, of course, what we're doing at the Gateway Center, it's the largest investment ever in the history of the city in homelessness. But we, we MCI, I will tell you, though, was trying to say, like, we need multiple conversations. We need one literally about, you know, people who are on outstanding warrants and are literally shooting at elected officials' houses while their kids are sleeping. Uh, we need something that will help with that, and meaning that that individual, one of those individuals was actually outstanding on a felony warrant. We have to do that at the same time as look at the drivers of how those individuals ended up in those situations. So you've got to do both. But I think what was happening with MCI is that, you know, people were saying that you can't forget one without the other. And so MCI is really focused on short-term initiatives, but everything else we're doing, whether it's our housing forward program or whether it's our alternative response, that's the, the largest in the country, which is sending social workers out to take now 20,000 calls that officers would have taken. Um, that is a wonderful thing. Uh, and so we're doing those. But it's a little different, you know, than specifically MCI was designed, like, hey, what can we do in the next six months? Uh, but on other fronts, we've got to work on things like poverty and addiction. Okay, we're going to have to pause the, section, the, the, the discussion for just a moment. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. We are taking your calls about curtailing crime. Call us at 505-277-5866 to share your ideas. We'll be right back. The Spring Fundraiser is coming right up on March 18th, and we're looking for businesses and individuals who can offer a challenge grant. When you place a challenge grant on a show during the fundraiser, it really encourages listeners to donate, which ultimately increases the amount of support for the programming you love. So if you are planning to give $500 or more, please make it a challenge grant and call me, Shanda Shaw, at 505-277-8006. That's 277-8006. Connect to your local community by becoming a KUNM business underwriter. Program support through underwriting highlights your business while supporting news and locally curated music. To become a business underwriter, contact Kelly at 505-277-3969. KUNM programming is made possible by supporting members from Las Lunas, Moriarty, and many other communities, large and small. No matter where you call home, thank you for your generosity. KUNM, powered by you. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kaveh Movahead. We're talking to Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller, and we have Enrique Cardiel, the executive director of Health, the Health Equity Council on the line with us. Big systematic changes to curtail crime would take years or decades to help. What can we do right now? Call 505-277-5866 or tweet to us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. 
The mayor and our third guest can't stay with us too long this hour, so I'm going to bring in number three right now. We have the new Bernalillo County District Attorney Sam Bregman on the phone with us. DA Bregman comes to the job after decades in the public spotlight, but most recently he was a defense attorney. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Now, you must have a different perspective on prosecuting people who are charged with crimes after so many years doing defense. What ideas are you implementing that can help the DA's office be more effective in curtailing crime? Well, I I am bringing the the experience of being involved in the criminal justice system for decades. um, And I've obviously represented not only people who have been charged with crimes, but victims of crimes as well. And I understand, I I believe, the, the big picture Listen, I think the mayor touched on it when he said um, everybody working together, and that is one of the things we're focusing on at this office is making sure we're collaborative when it comes to all the various law enforcement agencies, our federal partners, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the DA's Office, uh, really bringing a you know comprehensive approach to fighting this. We know that there's a certain number of people that are driving the violent crime, for example, and this community is really frustrated and, and very angry about the amount of violent crime, the gun crime that's going on in Albuquerque. And we're focusing in on that like a laser beam. And, and of course, we're doing the basic job of prosecuting c- crime, and that is what this office does very, very well. We have some fantastic career prosecutors here, and we're, we are focused on that, obviously our number one priority but really working together to try and get a handle on how we can fix, um, which has been appropriately said, a broken system right now, fix so that we don't have violent offenders out repeating constantly uh, violent offenses. Okay, so where are those shortfalls in the justice system right now when it comes to community safety and constitutional obligations to citizens? Well, a perfect example is what's going on this week, for example, with um, an individual who has... um, previously been convicted of murder, who's charged with first-degree murder again, who was released pre-trial, who the Supreme Court agreed with this office and said, no, he should be detained until trial because he is a danger to the community. Um, he, By the time we got the warrant put in place to pick him back up, he had, he had already cut off his ankle bracelet, and he's in the wind now. And that issue, for example, is that we just continue to see too many violent offenders repeating of violent offenses um, once they're charged or waiting for trial. There is a complete lack of respect by a number of individuals in this community for the rule of law and for judges' orders. They don't show up for court. They don't, they don't take uh, into consider. Uh, well, they don't have any respect for the law, period. So we are focusing on them. Because our process is broken, obviously we've been up at the legislature and we continue to be up to the legislature asking them to help us fix this process. Okay, Mayor Keller, I'm wondering where APD fits in. We heard about understaffing a few years ago, and then there were a couple big classes of new police cadets. How's increasing the number of police on the ground a real solution to crime? Well, it's uh, not a realistic solution at this point, regardless. Uh, We know that it takes X amount of manpower. So the reason why we have for example, been able to actually arrest uh, 90% of the people who have uh, committed homicides is because we tripled the number of folks in that department. But we also spent uh, big investments in technology, whether it's gunshot detection or whether it's uh, the program that does, it's called NIBINS, which sort of runs shell casings 
So we're doing this because the number of officers, you know, they're the recruiting for, you know, unfortunately, there is very little uh, in terms of success when it comes to actually growing the numbers of any police department in the city, whether regardless of where how you feel about that issue. And so the answer is to civilianize desk jobs and to use technology and focus officers on actually fighting violent crime, like investigating homicides. So that's where we're going as a department. It's, it's, it's an old notion that we're just going to get 1,200 officers and we're going to be safer. One, because we're never going to get to that number. Uh, two, uh, what actually keeps us safer is focused collaborative work with folks like the DA's office and the technology to make sure that we actually, when somebody is guilty, that they are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And so uh, that's really where we're going. But the last part is the funding we're putting in is actually in social workers. It's in that new community safety department that is taking calls that normally an officer would take that they're not even equipped to take uh, or uh, something that they, they signed up to do. So now we send you know social workers out all over, 20,000 last year, to take calls to get the right response at the right time. So it shouldn't always be a police officer. And this is one area, just one area, where Albuquerque is actually leading the way. Mayor Keller, I'm glad you mentioned Albuquerque Community Safety, ACS. There was a big article about it in The New Yorker this week. And what I'm wondering is, because it's such a, a big part of the Metro Crime initiative, initiative, why is it getting so much less money than APD? Well, it's actually been increasing the amount of funding that it's been getting every year. And so uh, we want it, I mean, eventually, it, 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 you know, who knows what sort of the top end is, but we want it to be able to take as many calls as possible. So we doubled the funding in it last year, and we're continuing to ask for more funding until it's uh, operating 24-7. There's actually a bill at council that I think is coming uh, just this month that is going to allow, give them more funding to open 24-7. The challenge has just been to ramp it up. You know, it's only a year old. So taking 20,000 calls and having, I think, roughly a $10 million budget um, is a great start. Uh, but we're going to continue to shift resources that way. Okay, I want to go back to D.A. Bregman as a, a prosecutor and also a former defense attorney. How do you uh, balance prosecuting crimes with maintaining fairness and equitable treatment for the accused, but also the victims in the community? It's, it's an important, important issue in every prosecution. And obviously, we start with the premise that everybody is innocent until and unless they are proven guilty in a court of law. But at the same time, much of our community, unfortunately, is experiencing not only actual crime, but this sense and fear of crime. And so when we talk about violent offenders, for example, people who are um, already known to have been, who have committed and been convicted of crime, who do it again, um, and then they are let out, for example, under a pretrial release system that should not, they should not be released. Um, those folks, um, we need to make sure we're providing um, because the entire community is a victim, if you will, of those folks when it comes to public safety. Um, but we need to make sure that we are doing everything we can to keep the most violent people in this community, and there are unfortunately a number of them, um, detained prior to trial. But we always, there's always the presumption of innocence in our judicial system. It is what's made this judicial system 
the greatest in the world. It's not perfect by any means, but it is certainly um, something that I know that the rest of the world aspires to. But we need to focus on continuing to thread that needle between making sure that people are continuing to presume the innocent, but we also at the same time are providing safety to the public. Okay, I know we don't have too much more time with the mayor and the DA, so here's a question for both of you. Let's start with Mayor Keller, and then we'll go to DA Bregman. The legislature is in session. What are you asking for from state lawmakers? How can they help make our communities safer? Mayor Keller? Sure, we've sent uh, our priorities and met with them, and so they're aware of these asks. But, you know, we do, we're looking at, we want $50 million in housing. Uh, support. And of course, they have plenty of surpluses. Uh, we also need in the metro $5 million to support with uh, warrants for violent uh, felons that are outstanding. And uh, we also uh, we're hoping to get some extra funding to expand our Albuquerque Community Safety uh, Department. And lastly, uh, funding for the Gateway Center, which uh, we want to be able to help and heal a thousand people a day, which is what it used to when it was the old Loveless. And that includes behavior and addiction treatment. So that's our wish list for the session. Okay, and DA Bregman, what are your asks from the legislature this session? Certainly, one of them obviously is to help us work with us on fixing the the whole issue of pretrial detention, which I've just discussed a little bit. Also, we we join in the city in, in supporting funding for warrant roundups, if you will, and, and going out after these folks who have felony warrants who have no respect for the rule of law. Obviously, we want the legislature to support our budget requests. There, they are. Some of them are significant. We want to improve, and what part of that budget request is, is being able to fund some really, um, really state-of-the-art data and technology platforms that we're, we're, we are um, developing here at the district attorney's office. And, of course, there, we, we also um, support um, a number of pieces of legislation when it comes to the use of firearms and, and making sure, for example, that that children don't have access to them and that large capacity magazines are banned in the state of New Mexico. Okay, and before you two go, we got an email question that I think is appropriate for you. We'll start with the mayor. Uh, Lisa says, home break-ins are a huge problem in Albuquerque. I'm wondering what's being done to limit the market for stolen goods, for example, through pawn shops or other resale outlets. Yeah, this is a good one, and I'm glad they mentioned it. Yeah, we also have some legislation up there on, uh, as the DA mentioned, on all sorts of usage of firearms. But another aspect of this is when people, you know, violently uh, break into a house and they take this material, like the rationale is, is always twofold. It's number one, to sell it, and unfortunately, usually to convert that to funding uh, so they can uh, purchase or, or traffic in drugs. So, there is a partner on the other side, which is the entity that's buying those. And so we're looking at this is a big area around copper theft and what we can do to uh, increase how we deal with that, but also retail theft. So this idea of, you know, these folks just walking into all these stores, walking out with a bunch of material. Again, it's very different. This is not somebody just stealing a candy bar at all. This is organized and it's done to fund drug trafficking. So there are a number of legislative uh, initiatives on that as well that we're hoping to get help with. 
And lastly, I would say we did, city council uh, did pass a very strict uh, pawn shop ordinance. And so the challenge with that is it doesn't apply to a lot of these firearms that we need to get off the street. So we have to connect those two things. But uh, at least uh, we had some good action or in terms of legislative action on that, I think, a couple of years ago with pawn shops. But now we need the legislator to crack down on semi-automatic weapons and their availability to kids uh, and also to be purchased off the street. Okay, and DA Bregman, I wonder, does the DA's office have any role in limiting the market for stolen goods or dealing with home brigands? Well, of course, we we are obviously in charge of prosecuting crime, and we are making a priority home invasions and burglaries and and things of this nature. We are focusing on. Um, it's very important that we do everything we can. But as the mayor said, these type of crimes are fueled by by drugs, and and unfortunately, there's just it's 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 crazy right now with what's going on in this community when it comes to things like fentanyl. And so all these things are interrelated, and the crime issue um, has to be looked at as a whole, and we are doing everything we can. But I'll just give you one quick example. When, when, the legislate, when legislation is in front of the legislature asking to um, enhance penalties for people that use firearms during a drug transaction, for example, and we have people who testify on that saying, well, drug transactions are inherently dangerous, so therefore, people need to have guns, or or that's why they have guns when they're doing drugs transactions. That kind of mindset needs to end in the, in in our state. That kind of mindset needs to stop. We need to recognize what's going on here, and that when when you do drug transactions and have firearms on you, that's going to get violent, and that's a, a, a big driver of what's going on in this community when it comes to the violence out there. So, it's a big picture, and and we need to prosecute all violent crime and. Breaking into someone's home, um, very few people feel, um, or most people that when that happens to them feel extremely violated in every way, whether or not they're home or not. So, um, yeah, we're focused on it here at the office. I wonder, since, you know, you both keep kind of relating these crimes back to addiction and drugs and fentanyl especially, is it repeat offenders typically uh, committing these kinds of crimes to kind of uh, pay for their addictions or fuel their addictions? D.A. Bregman? Well, we're, we're obviously seeing when it comes to drug crimes, yes, there's, there's a tremendous amount of repeat offenders. Um, but, and unfortunately, the drug crimes become often, it goes from a straightforward drug crime, and then it ends up into a violent crime. And we're seeing the violence because once guns are put in, into play, it, it, it is a toxic mix, if you will. And so we're focused on the combination of those, and that's one of the things that we're, going, we're doing with our, our data development and our technology development is to be able to link up these various groups who not only are doing the drug dealing but are trafficking in the guns as well. Okay. I want to go to Enrique now, Enrique Cardiel from the Health Equity Council. You do public health work. I wonder where you are involved in this kind of cycle of crime and addiction and drugs. Uh, one of the areas that we work in is uh, substance use prevention, specifically opioids, which includes fentanyl. So we do uh, work as far as uh, education and reduction. We also do harm reduction work. Um, one of the important things uh, now with fentanyl uh, being as out there as it is, as well as other opioids, is looking at how can we uh, prevent overdoses, right? 
people can't get better if they died. So we need to help folks uh, with that. But yeah, we go out and we do harm reduction. We do education uh, on these issues. And we know that it's um, related to to violence and other crimes. So it's all connected. And, and that's one uh, of the blessings and curses of working in public health is we get to see that everything is uh, interconnected. Uh, everything from our policing and incarceration system to um, our education and, and the access to these uh, substances, right? Uh, the community doesn't create these substances. Uh, you know, they come from other places. And so um, doing what we can to keep people safe is, uh, as safe as possible is important. And that's the type of work that we focus on. Okay. We lost the DA. He had to run. The mayor is still on the line, I believe. And, Mayor, we have a caller here, uh, Karen from Albuquerque, who I think might have a question for you. Karen, go ahead. Oh, good morning, um, Mayor and um, Mr. Cardiel. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I, my question is, um, Enrique talked about fentanyl, and I know that's like I'm um, like one of the major things happening right now. And so knowing that that can be part of crime and, you know, people have trauma and all that, but I was wondering what is being available for programs for substance abuse and for mental health because that all ties in together. Mayor Keller, did you get that? Sure. Yeah, and what I can do is take a shot at it, and then actually Enrique is, is, is much more uh, qualified and an expert on this than I am. But, uh, you know, so the listeners know, you know, that there's, there's obviously a spectrum of uh, points where you can deal with the fentanyl issue. You know, there's, there's sort of back-end trafficking, and there's uh, cartels involved and all of this stuff, which is really a federal issue. So when you get into our town, it's about you know, what do we do about addiction? And the county actually is uh, just from a governmental jurisdiction. Uh, they provide the, the behavioral health services locally. And so uh, just an idea for a future show is to just do a whole show on behavioral health and have the county folks there. And then the state uh, funds it. The city actually has never had any direct behavioral health programming, and it's, it's really not a municipal um, uh, sort of duty. And we've changed that, though, in a sense that we're trying to provide a place where people can go emphasis physically on a place right now on a 24 seven basis. If you're having an addiction, you have or an, an episode or you need help. There's literally nowhere you can go on like a Saturday afternoon because they're closed except for the emergency room. Or unfortunately, if, if you're involved in criminal activity, it's jail. The gateway center will change that. We are opening the first 24 seven drop off uh, emergency drop-off that is not obviously jail or uh, the emergency room. So the idea is it truly is a gateway. People can go there and they will be, you know, um, they might stay a couple of days, but then they'll be put into a place where they can get help. And so keeping them out of either that hospital system or out of the criminal justice system is something we've needed for decades. And, and I think just in a couple of months, we're going to finally uh, fix that problem here in Albuquerque. All right. Thank you, Mayor. We are going to have to pause just for a moment. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Stay right there. We'll be back in a minute. Bicycles are for more than just getting around. Travel programs aimed at getting more citizens on bikes aim to improve both health and environmental outcomes for both urban and rural residents. 
We'll talk about the benefits of bikes and bike safety. That's on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. If you've been thinking about donating that old car or truck to KUNM, this is the time to make that call and actually do it. Together, our listeners who donated vehicles paid almost 10% of KUNM's bills. That means so much to us, and it means something to you, too, because that's less fundraising we need to do on air. So please, don't put it off any longer. Call 888-KUNM-CAR today. We take care of everything from towing to tax receipt. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888 888- Five eight six six two two seven. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're taking your calls on crime and justice. Call 505-277-5866 to share your ideas about how we can make safer communities and offer justice to victims. Uh, We do have two more guests still to bring in this hour, but before we move on, I want to go ahead and let Enrique Cardiel respond to the mayor's comments right before the break. Yeah, and I just want to be quick so the other folks get on as well. You know, I think it's telling that our biggest behavioral services are uh, jail, right? Most people get treatment. More people get treatment in jail than anywhere else, and we need to change that. Um, And we need to to treat addiction as it is, which is a crime. It's a um, public health issue. You know, it's not a crime to be addicted some of the things you may do uh, to deal with that um, may fall into into crimes. But, you know, being addicted itself is not a crime and we shouldn't treat it that way. OK, thanks. It wouldn't be right to talk about crime and justice without including crime victims perspectives. Joining us is Linda Atkinson, the executive director of the New Mexico Victims Rights Project on the line with us from Albuquerque. Thanks for joining the conversation. Good morning. Linda, what does the Victims' Rights Project do? We provide pro bono attorneys for crime victims in navigating the criminal justice system and uh, the attorney, if rights are potentially violated or violated, the attorney will go in and argue New Mexico constitutional and statutory rights for victims. Okay. Uh, what kinds of needs or wants have you seen that are common to victims? What aren't they getting? Uh, treated with respect. That's the big one. Uh, Victims feel like they become just a piece of evidence. And uh, because of low staffing with a lot of prosecution offices, they don't have time a lot of times to explain the criminal justice process, how it works, rules of evidence, rules of uh, criminal procedure that affect cases. So many times they are felt left out. They have said, I feel like I'm being treated like the offender. But truly, offenders get attorneys, victims do not. So we are trying to actually bring meaningful participation in the criminal justice system for victims by helping them assert their rights that are spelled out in our Constitution. I wonder if there are differences in victim services or the needs based on location or ethnicity, you know, something regional or some way we can kind of find a path to equity. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I've been pushing for for years is a victim's rights compliance office. A lot of times victims are looking everywhere for help, and they find us similar to how you did by Googling and finding the Victim's Rights Project. There's only uh, three of us and one attorney right now. We do work statewide. And, you know, it's a matter of hitting the, you know, getting equity, as you say, for crime victims. 
And it's taking a very long time to see that actually play out in the courtrooms where victims' privacy is totally ignored. Uh, you have sexual assault victims who counseling records are asked for and judge says, sure. And this is why a lot of these crimes do not get reported. It's very low reporting on sexual assault and domestic violence. And what happens is they continue to be uh, victimized, we find, in a lot of cases. So um, when we talk about this overall picture, I loved hearing about uh, Mayor Kelly uh, Keller's uh, initiative, the Metro Crime Initiative, uh, Sam Bregman and his recognition that there has to be that equity. Um, this has to go statewide. I have worked statewide forever. The DWI Resource Center is what I started. That's what we focused on in policy changes. And I began to realize it isn't just DWI victims that are ignored through the court system. So are all victims of violent crime. And I think the more they're treated with respect and dignity, they hopefully find their voices are heard in the system. And, um, I mean, in the purpose of this act that New Mexico has, uh, victims' rights are to be protected by law enforcement prosecutors and judges as vigorously as are the rights of criminal defendants. And the way that looks is if a victim has not been notified of a hearing, we would, you know, a lot of times it's just a phone call judge, you know, there's victims rights. They have the right to be notified or DA's office. And if they ignore it again, then we file a motion and, and it becomes educational moments for the whole judicial system that these rights exist, exist for victims. And in order to have their voice heard, I think there's a, a better sense that justice is served from their perspective. Okay, I'd like to go back to Enrique. As I asked that last question to you, Linda, it occurred to me that it may be a public health kind of question. Uh, we keep going back to these social determinants of health and their intersection with people who commit or are victims of crime. So, Enrique, how should we take that into account when we're making policy? Um. I think what we need to do uh, is really look at, at how we can uh, promote different forms of restorative justice, right? Because uh, I had my home broken into, and, um, you know, the DA came regularly and asked me, like, you know, what else do you want me to do to this person? Um, you know, and really what I wanted was for them to go get treatment, um, you know, so that they wouldn't be participating in this, you know, continued. Um, but there was, again, this focus on punishment. And I'm pretty sure um, there was not a consideration of, like, the fact that I wanted this person, you know, as the victim that I wanted this person to get treatment was ever taken seriously. You know, I think, again, you know, it was just, how do we punish somebody? How do we, we do all of that, um, you know, without treating, it, you know, me as the, you know, supposed victim, um, you know, or, or as the victim in this situation? Yeah, Linda. Uh, with what, respect, uh, by, by acknowledging that that was my desire. Linda, I wonder if these are kind of uh, common, you know, sentiments yeah. that you hear from victims. Is Absolutely. 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 There is a group called the Alliance for Safety and Justice, which has many uh, crime victims. It's a national alliance. But in the surveys they've done, 61% of crime victims support shorter prison sentences and more spending on prevention and rehabilitation uh, to long prison sentences. They see the needs for housing. And so it is a matter of uh, the punitive aspect should only be a small piece 
and the rehabilitative vigor. But I really think in the research I've seen, combining both, once a crime has been committed, not addiction, but a crime, then that combination shows better results than just a punitive or just a rehabilitative. So I'm a big fan of that. Uh, Restorative justice is great. It's very hard to get there in a uh, violent crime situation. Um, You've got attorneys involved. Um, The victim might be willing or not willing, but that's what restorative justice requires is both parties, you know, to be willing. But, yeah, I think we definitely, that criminal justice system being broken, I've said that for, I've been doing this about 30 years. I think I've been saying it about 30 years. And knowing what we have to do and face it head on and collaboratively is exactly what we need to do. Um, we're cur- Just real quick, we're currently uh, pushing for a raise in the alcohol excise tax to create the uh, Alcohol Harms Alleviation Fund. And it would help fund a lot of what you're talking about, Enrique, and the, the mayor, these different pieces, because addiction is not a crime. And we have to start saying that more and more, remove the stigma. All right. I think this is just the right opportunity to hear from an active lawmaker and former prosecutor who's sponsoring several crime bills in this session. We have Republican State Representative Andrea Reeb of Clovis joining us by phone from Santa Fe. I know you're exceptionally busy right now, so thanks for setting some time aside for us. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. All right. We've been talking about curtailing crime, so policing, prosecuting, but also trying to include ideas of how to be fair to communities and victims who often bear the brunt of crime and policing. You've signed on to quite a few bills that we'd like to talk about, but let's start with House Joint Resolution 9. It would rework the rules for bail to give judges more authority to deny bail, in part to keep people in jail if they have a higher risk of not coming back for court. That's regardless of whether they are deemed dangerous. Why do you feel that's necessary? Well, um, so this bill was important because if, if you remember back in November 18th of 2016, there was this proposed amendment that we all voted for, or obviously it passed by the majority. But it, its purpose was to allow bail to basically be denied for a defendant who's charged with a felony if the prosecutor couldn't prove that the to the judge that the defendant posed a threat to the public. Um, it would also allow that a defendant who is not a danger to the community or a flight risk, um, they couldn't be denied bail solely because of their financial ability to post. And so I think when everybody read that bond, it made at least myself believe, okay, this is going to give a judge a lot more discretion to hold dangerous people in jail. Um, And when it passed, um, I I honestly believe people were voting for something that they thought would give judges more discretion. And then it turned out kind of to be the opposite. Um, And so what happened is now we're back to this pretrial detention controversial revolving door that's kind of been obviously in the news and and crime's gone up. And and so I prosecuted under both systems and I see benefits to both systems and um, bringing bail back was something that I thought would would be another tool for a judge to use in order to help hold these violent offenders, but yet also help hold people who keep don't coming to court. And then ones that are maybe committing, you know, 20 burglaries. And my whole point on this bill was I thought it was confusing to the voters. Let's take it back to the voters. Let the voters 
have a say in this. Let's put it back on as a constitutional amendment, get it through the House, get it through the Senate. And so I felt that this was a real important uh, resolution that we could we could try to get you know done. It's it's actually only gone through one committee at this point where it did pass. Um, but so that's where we are on that. And that was why I felt that bill was important. I'm wondering, you were a prosecutor. You probably know how often do people reoffend while they're out on bail? Is that common? Oh, it's extremely common, and, and it's become way more common now that we don't have a bail system. Because if you think when we had bail system, when I started 25 years ago, a bondsman would choose to bond somebody out, and it could be a really low bond. And also this bail takes into account their financial ability. But if somebody went out and committed another burglary, they were picked up by their bondsman and brought back, and they got off that bond often. Sometimes they didn't, sometimes they did. Or a judge would just issue a warrant and bring them back in. So you didn't end up with a case um, like I heard in Albuquerque where you have someone who's committed 20 burglaries because it stopped. You got them in jail, you got the cases together, and then you were able to resolve it with a plea or prison sentence or, or whatever it might be. But it stopped this mass amount of repeat offenders from getting out and recommitting. And it's it's the same people the majority of the time. They make bond, they violate their conditions of release, pick up another crime, and it just continues and continues and continues. And it's hard for prosecutors and public defenders to get a hold of all those cases and actually finally get them resolved till they're in jail and they stop that crime. So. Linda, I'm wondering if you can kind of relay how victims tend to feel when suspects in their cases are released on bail. Do they do they know? Sometimes they do, and sometimes sometimes they don't, and that gets to be a problem because when you hear about domestic violence, uh, murder, suicide, and or the femicide that goes on in this state, they weren't notified of release. We try to. There's a couple of systems in place, the VINE system, which is a victim information notification every day, but a lot of times it's down, it's not working, and it's just not foolproof. So victims don't say, they, you know, once you're victimized, for any of us that have been, there's a real feeling of distrust um, and, and fear. And so when they don't know what's going on with the, the offender that perpetrated the crime, there is extreme fear. And I think it is something that we really forget. We, we talk about the community and public safety. Well, the victims are, they're hyper alert on what's happening and want to know. And they have a right to know. So we do file um, motions on that. We had another prisoner call from the prison phone threatening to kill his wife and kids. And they went ahead and released him on parole. There's a lot of dysfunction in this system, I'll tell you. So we have to work with the victim family to make sure they stay safe, have a safety plan, and everything around what happens to them while the offender is la da It's just not, it's not a fair system. Okay, thank you. Uh, Representative Reeb, uh, there are a couple of bills you sponsored that are on the wish list of Albuquerque Mayor Keller and D.A. Bregman, who were on the show earlier this hour, like the request for funding to clear up the backlog of outstanding felony warrants. That's HB 97. The majority of that funding is slated for the Albuquerque area. But how big is the need for that effort in other parts of the state? Well, it's actually just as big. And I think when that bill, I, I sit on judiciary when that bill was presented um, by Representative Reem, it did come up that there are a lot of rural areas that have a lot of backlog and warrants, too. And so I think that he's working on that bill to try to include more agencies and more rural areas. But that is a obviously a huge problem in these larger metro areas. But 
in rural New Mexico, it is just as big of a problem because I have seen crime rise, um, not to the level of Albuquerque, but when you look at it from, uh, let's say I'm from Clovis and we've had, you know, seven or eight homicides already, you know, in, well, last year, I think we, I don't know how many, we maybe had nine or 10. That is a large amount for a town of that size. Um, and so it's everywhere and these warrants are pending on everybody. So I'm hoping that bill can um, add more language to help the rural areas in addition, because I know they're, they want to get their warrants um, picked up also. Okay. And Representative Reed, we only have about a minute and a half left. We One last question then. We generally don't think of Republicans suggesting laws regarding guns, but you've signed on to HB 61 that would increase penalties for felons in possession and broaden the definition to include destructive devices. Then there's HB 59 that would create a new state felony for possessing a gun while trafficking a controlled substance. Uh, HB 59 is bipartisan. So is HB 306 that creates a felony for purchasing a gun for someone who shouldn't have one, like a felon. Are we starting to find some common ground when it comes to gun laws? Well, I understand that a lot of people think Republicans shouldn't um, support gun legislation in any form. And, And I don't, I mean, I'm a firm believer in the protection of the Second Amendment, and I don't support legislation that takes those rights away, but I do understand the need for prosecutors to be able to have the ability to, um, like, for example, if you're going to, if you're buying a firearm and you know it's going to a felon or you know it's going to commit a crime, that's good for prosecution, that's good for victims, that's good for the community. Um, Those are the type of legislative bills I would support, um, not taking someone's Second Amendment rights away, but but bills that um, basically protect society um, as far as giving prosecutors more, you know, because these are these are criminals. I mean, most of the time they're they're they, they know they're giving a gun to a felon, then they should be held accountable. And so, yeah, I do think that that we're starting to see a little bit more um, of how we can help you know, deal with guns, but um, not to confuse that with my um, thoughts as a prosecutor and wanting to protect people and victims when we know there's intent to actually cause harm. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you there. I'm sorry. We've reached the end of the hour. Thanks to everyone who called in or tweeted, and thanks to our guests, Tim Keller, Sam Bregman, Enrique Cardiel, Linda Atkinson, and Andrea Reeb. If you missed part of the show, we'll have audio up on our website soon, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Next week, we'll talk about the governor's plan to offer free meals in schools to all of New Mexico students. Our engineer today is Marino Spencer. Daniel Montano handled the phones. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted for us and Megan Cameron produced the show. I'm Kaveh Movahead for Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.